The theme for the retreat is the practice of loving-kindness. And, of course, you're free to use your wisdom and do what is required for your own practice. But I'm just offering these as encouragements, you know, for you to, so they can stay on that theme. There's a lot of uh, benefits to the loving-kindness, and uh, it also requires preparation. And so you might all be thinking, well, how do you, how do you practice loving-kindness all day long? I mean, the main thing is that you have lots to do. And what the lots to do is what is present in the mind that is not loving-kindness. That's the lot to do. And that's the five hindrances. When they come up, there's a lot of activity and interest and investigation available. Just to turn your mind inward on yourself and just see what's my emotional tone right now. You can give yourself a mark if it's non-ill will. It may not be loving-kindness, but at least it's non-ill will, the absence of aversion. And that's already very good. We're heading in the right way. We obviously can't have loving-kindness and ill will at the same time, but you can certainly have the absence of ill will and be in a kind of a neutral, quiet, not energized state. Just be a good observer and kind of categorizing what it is that you're feeling. And so the first most obvious opposite and enemy of loving-kindness is hostility, anger, aversion, and any form of irritability, and including boredom. Boredom is a form of aversion. Basically, when you're bored, you'd just rather be somewhere else. It's not here that you want to be. It might be a physical space, you're in a nice physical space, you like the space, but you're bored. So what I was saying is, I don't like this moment I'm in. I don't like this hour that I'm in. It's not providing me with well-being. What is that? Projecting onto the environment around you, you're projecting your own aversion. So it's a subtle form of, I don't like this. And uh, you have your reasons... And you can probably point out why you don't like this, but it's always a mistake. You have to take the blame, you know, for this. This is you're creating it. It's you that doesn't like this. And so this this is a kind of observation you have to make of yourself throughout the day. Sometimes you'll be distracted by daydreams and desires and so forth. You know, that's a lesser fault, uh, a lesser problem, the desire and cravings and fantasies like this is less, but it's still not loving-kindness. So you have all of the hindrances, the five hindrances are are rich opportunities for uh, practice. That, that can keep you going all day long. In fact, you have this full week, some of you have two weeks, to just keep your eyes on what's going on and of course, you can label it. This is the, the, the Vipassana technique of anger, anger. It doesn't have to be put into words or anything, but you should be recognizing your emotional states. And it's just while you're walking down the stairs, while you're plumping up your cushion to sit down, while you're 
waiting for the monks to come down and do the blessing. While you're taking a walk outside, you're observing nature and so forth, you're splitting your attention into two directions, and you really can't do this. You are a multitasking creature. Maybe that's the definition of what a human is, a being that can multitask. <laughs> Actually, every being, I think most of the the beings from like a mouse up, even even less than that, have to be able to do at least two things. And one of them is they have to figure out where the food is and be able to pick the food out from that which is not food. And that's a form of attention. That's really what mindfulness is. And then there's another part of them that has to keep from being eaten. And that's the other part. That's why you have a split brain, like you have a, two hemispheres. All The animals have two capacities. One is like the panoramic awareness, and the other one is focused attention. And we have that as well. Now, if those things go off the track, and when, when they go off the track, either one of them becomes dominant and the other one disappears, you're not in a, a balanced state, and that's the cultivation of both of these things. So you kind of have a panoramic awareness of, of things. What's appropriate? How am I fitting in to the situation? What's going on? What do I have to do now? At the same time, you're attending to the in this case, not to finding food, but finding the details of your inner life. You know, the absent-minded professor type has forgotten something called sampajanya. doesn't have panoramic awareness. So they're working on their engineering solution or their symphony or something. They're preoccupied with this. They appear to be absent-minded, but they're actually fully-minded, but without the panoramic awareness. They're fully engaged in that. They also may not be part of the panoramic awareness is how do I feel? What's going on with me? The field of my awareness, of my emotional tone is is the environmental sort of panoramic scan. And then the focus on the individual thing that's occurring now as well. We can do this, both of these things. This is what Sati Sampajanya is. Sampajanya is, it really comes from the monks being instructed, look, you're going to go on alms round through the village every day, and I don't want you misrepresenting the Sangha. So here's some things that you should not be doing. You should not be go with your robes all uh, askew. The robes should be nice and neat and evenly wrapped all around. Don't be staring off in all directions, don't go laughing loudly, don't go hopping like a frog. <laughs> don't, don't sit lolling. All kinds of things. That's where we get this this idea of sampajanya or uh, comprehensive awareness. The way sometimes they translate it as clear comprehension. And so even monks have to be not just one-pointedly focused on the end of their nose. They have to have a panoramic awareness of the situation they're in, what's appropriate. Maybe they have a duty to be done. Maybe you're going to the kitchen and so forth, dust mopping the floor. This is duties to be done. This is to be done with clear comprehension and awareness. How much is appropriate? What's too little? What's too much? And at the same time as all of this is going on, your eyes are turned inward. So it's, imagine rolling your eyes and just 
even while you're having a conversation, while you're talking to a person and observing them and trying to find out what's the, what's the appropriate thing to say, how do they feel, what's the response, that is a very high demand, actually, attention experiences to talk to a single other person because there's all kinds of subtleties in that. You see how after you come out of a, a retreat or an extended period in a monastery, quite often be shocked at how little actual dialogue is going on between two people talking. There's a kind of a two monologues going on, which are quite at completely different angles. Like one person says something and the other person says something off in this direction. There's no dialogue. There's no response to the theme that's being offered. And then a synthesis of this, you know, this dialectic thing where you have a theme and then a variation on that and then the two of them are put together and then something else comes out of a new theme comes out of that and so forth. You see that's a failure in modern times. Incoherence, lack of attention and lack of response to what's in front of you as well. I mean that's a great attention thing. A good conversation is highly attentive. So when these processes are low and you're not looking into yourself, you're going to spew out whatever emotional tone is telling you. And, of course, it's distorted. You don't know what is appropriate to say. In fact, people get into all kinds of difficult situations. They've got to go to court, and they're trying to figure out what to say when they get there. Or you've got to go to a business meeting, and you're trying to figure out what to say and how to say it. And, that, and you're trying to think, sorting out the words but of course, you can never quite get, you, you can't, where do words come from? Good question. Where do words come from? <laughs> Why those words? Words actually come from the emotional base, and so you don't have to prepare the words. What you have to prepare is the emotional base. If you can get yourself in the right frame of mind, the right emotional structure, the words are not an issue. You've known those words probably since you were seven years old. You know how to make sentences, but you just don't know which words. The emotional tone tells you which words. And it also tells you the most subtle, amazingly subtle and complex thing, how to say them. What is the tone? When does the voice get soft? When does it insistent? <laughs> no, it's, it's an act of complexity that it's going to be a long time before artificial intelligence can do that. <laughs> These multiple variables are going on there. The source of them is emotional lucidity. And when we talk about emotional lucidity, this is the cultivation of this sublime, divine emotion, loving kindness. It's sublime and it's divine because you see things differently when you have it. Your mind sees the world in a much more unified way and in a much more, uh, an extension of yourself, really. You are now included in it. And this is what loving kindness can do, which other parts of our brain can't do, like analytical aspects of our brain, logical structures are not for unifying things. They're for dividing things. They separate things out. They bring them into individuality. And so people who are good at that, they can do that, but it has nothing to do with 
well-being and wholeness. And it's a very poor tool as well for sorting out the meaning of life. <laughs> Logically, there isn't one. <laughs> it's not that there isn't one, it's just that logic has no use. It's a, it's a hammer when you're trying to cut some paper. <laughs> There's tools for certain types of operations, and the tool for the operation which allows you to Maybe it, instead of answering the, what is the meaning of life, it, it allows you to stop asking what is the meaning of life. That's when you know you got the answer. It no longer occurs to you to ask. And that's a lot of answers are like that. You don't actually get the answer. The need to get the answer just is no longer there. And that means that you have the answer. So these are the operations of the mind. You're recognizing that several things are going on at once and you want to start to practice that because people are they're one-way streets you know they're reacting to the person out there they're not aware of like the realization that you know i'm threatened by their opinions about certain things and i'm a little actually i'm nervous about that and i'm actually feeling that i have to be angry in order to kind of overcome that and assert myself. So that's really important. Not the winning of the argument or even finding yourself respectable in the conversation. It's that you're looking in and seeing your attachments. Now this is what is meant by attachments. When you see these emotions coming up, the requirement to defend yourself or to appear clever or something in the eyes of another, that's where the self and the attachments are arising. And that's where you you have this divided attention. You're looking into that and you're watching that. And of course, you have to practice ahead of time as well. It, it's not necessary. Like ordinary people, they usually like to be thought well of or interaction with others is a certain amount of competition sometimes or some sort of representation of yourself. And you have to do this and, and quite often it's going to require some sort of story or distortion or a play or a, a fakeness or something if you see yourself do this you have to take up a little bit of a sadhana sadhana is a kind of a spiritual exercise for yourself where you try not to look good in the eyes of others you try not to compete you allow yourself to fail you allow yourself to be misunderstood Somebody says, oh, yeah, right, you're, uh, aren't you from the place down there? Or, you know, are you, you're a lawyer or something, aren't you? And just not correct them. <laughs> Don't correct them. <laughs> just see how it feels to not have to, to be free enough not to have to have everybody understand you or have a good impression of you. You will never get free that way. There is no end to that. It's a maze that never ends. And there's always pressure. Now, it's very hard to get this idea, but in the space of a retreat and, and with some leisure and some relaxation and some goodwill and everything, you might realize the burdens of this, the representation of the self, and how negative the hindrances arise connected to this. So this is what you can do all the live long day. You really start to see yourself there's another observer that you're trying to live up to their expectation, and that is yourself. You know, you're always, you're engaged with your self-opinion. 
your self-esteem. And that's sometimes good to fail at as well. Is say, just just wait a second here. <laughs> who's living up to who? <laughs> well, who's, who's talking to me? <laughs> this, uh, of course, is one of the most... This is a pandemic. That is, somebody's in there with a critical mind focusing on your faults and ordering you around. And this is, in fact, a hindrance. And that the Buddha talks about this hindrance is a compulsion, it's demand. And in its stronger forms, it really is amazing how compulsive these things can be in the weaker forms. You're being commanded to do certain activities in order to live up to some sort of idea of yourself. And part of you doesn't want to do this. The other part demands that you do this. And you're in this constant servant role with a kind of a mind that is uh, is exerting a kind of shame and conscience kind of thing on you. It's the social voice which you're trying to live up to. And of course, it's cultivated all the way in, in your educational system, in school and everything. You're being marked and judged and told that you must live up to these things. This is very tiring. And it's one of the it's hindrances. So this is... a worry and flurry, but I like to call it agitation and compulsion. So when one is agitated and compelled, like, by who? Like, what? (laughs) Who's in there doing that to me? That's why this is the idea of looking into yourself and seeing, questioning that, calling yourself out on this. Like, I don't have to listen to you. You're me. (laughs) It's just my other hemisphere talking. So loving kindness is going to saturate both. It's going to pull in that other part of you. It's going to dissolve that hindrance. It cannot sustain its attitude when you respond with loving kindness. You respond and say, look, you know, whether I do that or not, I'm still loved. I'm I'm all right, you know. My self-respect doesn't require me to fulfill all of your demands. <laughs> I don't need to be esteemed by you. I don't need to be estimated by you. So this is the loving kindness gets you out of the hook. Self-esteem is just another way of saying estimated. I'm going to weigh you. I'm going to measure you. And I'm going to compare you. You, apple, against this apple and this orange and so I'm going to weigh you and measure you and then I'm going to compare you. I'm going to estimate you. We're trying to develop our self-esteem. That is our own weighing and measuring of ourselves in order to qualify for praise, maybe, and in our wildest hopes, love, and especially self-love, self-acceptance. But you never can. There's always another way to measure and weigh you. And there's always somebody who weighs more. (laughs) Who's larger, smarter, better. And you could be. And you're experiencing this in the eyes of others as well. The other person is, even as they talk to you, they're kind of like disappointed. (laughs) 
we're disappointed in each other. <laughs> we're not measuring up. You could be more. You could be something else. You haven't fulfilled your potential. And you're looking at everybody. Why don't they fulfill their potential? <laughs> so this is what loving kindness steps around is, is no conditions attached. You do this, it's a positive sweeping emotion. It sweeps through you. You're safe. You are no longer going to be weighed and measured. You qualify. You're free. You go through the door. And so this is, all of those things are off the hook. And it doesn't mean that you never do any self-improvement. It's just the nature of loving kindness to play at that, to uh, sport and fiddle with the knobs of the amazing brain that humans have and to see if you can do this and see if you can make that and to enjoy this and to play this way and play that way. But it's playful because it's loving kindness. It's playful because you're not you don't have to qualify. At the end of the day, you and the other kids are just going to kick the sandcastles down that you spent all afternoon making and then run barefoot back to the back home <laughs> so that's that's good play but they, they're really serious about those sandcastles they're really working on those things and it's great but at the end of the day eh, who cares it doesn't matter so that's the thing is that these activities of our lives you know we do this we do that yeah you've got some talents this way that way you're smart this way or that way or not in the end it's just sandcastles it's not the core thing you're already fully embraced. You're already well. You're already without fear. You're already accepted. And these, all of these other things do not add or subtract anything from that. So this is understanding what loving kindness is. It's without conditions. It's full self-acceptance without conditions, without requirements. But it doesn't mean that you're going to just stagnate or be stupid. Because your nature is to be creative and play, but quite often you're oppressed by all of these horrible demands and all of the things you have to do and all of the work and stuff that you don't want to do, you got to do, and inner voices. This is draining your batteries. So when you do this, if you cultivate this loving kindness, you're also going to experience energy. Your energy is going to come back. It's playful. It's light. And what is taking your energies away? One of the factors of enlightenment is energy. And what is taking it away? It's that which opposes your well-being, is taking it away. It's the judgment. It's the inner critic. It's the need to be something, be somebody. It's the confusion. It's the lack of being able to be relaxed enough to both look outward and inward at the same time. And so when these things are done, when everything's operating in the right way, the system's not fighting itself. So it's a lot of that inner tension is making the task so much harder. So when we relax and feel we neither succeed or fail, we do not succeed or fail. We do some things great and some things badly, but in neither case do we succeed or fail. Remember, that's the case with the equanimity, non-regard for success or failure. It's amusing, it's creative, it's fun. We do things, sometimes we get the ball in the hoop or whatever, you know, but sometimes not. It's not up or down either way.
And it doesn't mean that we don't try to do anything well. We will if we trust our, our nature. It is playful and creative. I always like to remember the in the 60s, the, the hippies were somewhat against uh, competitive sports. So they they played frisbee a lot. And, um, <laughs> and then they, they had dog frisbee competitions. So you throw the frisbee in your dog, and the other guy's dog catches it. And then, well, who's the best frisbee catcher, right? The dog does not know he's in a competition. He doesn't know he won. He doesn't know he lost. He doesn't know he came second. Only humans can know that. But if you watch in slow motion the beautiful videos of dogs catching frisbees out of the air, you will see the most extraordinary Olympic efforts of the superb athletes, which dogs are. They will put it all on the line to catch that frisbee. (laughs) And they have to catch that in an intersection in the air. It's going at two different angles. They're going at two different angles. And they have to wait for the last millisecond. Now, do you think they're nervous about this? Do they think, will I win? (laughs) No. Why do they do it, you know? They just, that's their nature. They're playful and creative. And they do it. And they do catch it. And you can see that their paws are just rubber in the air. They haven't even thought about, how now am I going to land? (laughs) I'm five feet in the air. I haven't really thought about how to land. I'll get to that when I get to it. (laughs) First, I want this frisbee. (laughs) And you can see the incredible skills. I mean, to do that, to calculate all of that stuff, and to do it with... You see that the tail is also wagging. (laughs) Well, you see the emotional state expressed in the tail. So... There's no winning or losing or anything like that, but there's a full embodiment of joy, creativity, energy, and tremendous skills, both of the mind and the body. And you won't be any worse than a dog (laughs) if you stop worrying about winning and losing, (laughs) success and failure. You You will be creative and you will do amazing things, which staggeringly humans can do. Certainly we haven't encountered anything like a human comparable in complexity and marvel in entire explorations of the universe. There's nothing even close. So, you know, you're you're that. You're this thing of extraordinary complexity and capacities such that we, we who are extraordinary and have capacities still don't understand ourselves. We're that extraordinary (laughs) so you can relax into this this is the way it goes when you let go of all this selfing and this other things and trust that some brilliant people emotionally brilliant see they're not logically brilliant although the the Buddha's his logic operations are impeccable he's so far ahead of in many arguments that have gone on for 2,000 years in the West and finally arrived at a similar solution to what the Buddha had done 2,500 years ago. So his logic operations are impeccable, but as he says, logic is more or less canceling out roads that need not be walked down. Kind of, here's what is a waste of time. Now, over here is what will 
reward you for your efforts. So the logic can tell you what not to waste your time with, but it can't really tell you what is worth your time. The word worth is only known to the emotional dimension of the human. Logic doesn't know what the word worth means. It can't know. It can know mathematical formulas. It can know physical structures. It can know a lot of things, but it can't know what's worth something or what's important. The only sense of importance is always in emotional dimension. And that's the wisdom. So emotional structures are the wisdom dimension. Logical structures are the servant, useful tool for how not to waste your time. So we use this. And when we feel it in the heart, you'll recognize great art. So when you have a moment of loving kindness, you will be in awe of beauty and goodness and truth. The only thing that can know what beauty, goodness, and truth is, is the the heart, the emotional dimension. And so when you experience some quality of loving kindness that is unconditional, no measuring, no weighing, everything's accepted, then you will see beauty stand, uh, glow, you know, radiate. And you will feel it through your body. You will feel the rising of energy. You will know you're playing a very high and beautiful game now. It's the highest and the most beautiful game. Energizes the whole structure of the emotions. Probably can cure a few physical ailments as well because half of them are psychosomatic in a way. <laughs> so you might get over a few things if you just go swimming in loving kindness. So anyway, I just wanted to initiate that, that you, there's plenty to do during the day for the next seven days, in the next seven years, actually, in the next 70 years, next seven lifetimes. Plenty to do. And one is to just look inward at stuff that you don't need to be doing that doesn't go anywhere, just is destructive. And to avoid that. And don't listen to its stories. It's really an abrupt dismissal of those things. The hindrances should not really be listened to. They should be dismissed. Get back to the good stuff. It's kind of like you're watching a good movie and you have to take the garbage out. So you wait for the commercial. You run out to take the garbage out and come back. (laughs) That's the proper way to do it. (laughs) Don't take too much time with this. Just take the garbage out and come back to the good movie.